Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, we have near-death experiencer, David Bennett. And David is a former engineer and Navy diver. And in a tragic boating accident out at sea, he drowned and was reunited with his soul family on the other side. His near-death experience gave me the chills. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, David Bennett. How are you doing, David? Very good, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. I'm excited to talk to, about, talk to you about your near-death experience, which is as unique as a snowflake, as many of these other uh, near-death experiences I've talked to about, but they all do have a similar, similar moments uh, in them without question. Yeah, they're um, like themes almost. Um, there's certain aspects. But the funny thing is, is within these experiences, you don't always, not everybody has the same elements. You know, they're all because it's it's so unique and it's so individual. And I think that's part of the reason why so many people don't come out about their experience because it's so personal. Right. Um, it took me a long time. I, I probably it was 11 years before I spoke publicly about my experience. Um, wow. I tried to share it with a few friends. Didn't didn't go well. And so <laughs> I shut down. I shut down and I and I kind of hit it. But it was it's something that lives with you every day. Yeah. It, it, from what I understand, near death experiences are very custom built for the experience -er. it is. If you believe in Jesus, sometimes Jesus shows up. If you believe in Buddha, Buddha shows up. If you believe in Krishna, Krishna shows up. Um, or your or your third grade science teacher, or who it is weird different things that are very customizable to you. So not one, it's definitely not one size fits all. Um, but before we get into your near-death experience, what was your life like prior to you having this near-death experience? Yeah, I was a very self-involved individual. I grew up uh, being thrown in from one family to the next to the next um, during my childhood. So you become very self-reliant in that. And um, and you don't and my belief, actually, my philosophy at the time was you cut your swath through life so that and that doesn't really include other people so much okay and it's it's quite a brutal philosophy if you really think about it because it's very one-sided um i did have the opportunity though my mother took me back in when i was uh, 14 and so and we moved to arizona and at that time i was um hanging out with a lot of native kids and so their grandmothers kind of took me in and showed me um Kind of the natural way of be of living and i was really attracted to that and actually had a, my very first spiritual experience when i was 14 
uh, because that? of those. Well, it was it was kind of interesting. I they had taught me to kind of seek my own vision quest. Okay, mm -hmm. they had told me that that would be a seed to my own growth and that sort of thing. And so I did, and I was successful after many attempts. And um, and I and I had a a vision quest where I I went. It was it was rather odd where it felt like I was going into the earth, but then I found myself floating above it, and um, and and then I settled down onto the actual plateau that I was sitting on, meditating on, and um, and Grandfather Mountain came and spoke to me. Mm -hmm. That must have been. And you weren't taking any uh, mushrooms or peyote? No, 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 no peyote, <laughs> no nothing. No, it was it was it was all natural. Um, it, but it was many attempts before I actually had the deep experience. That deep experience. I had, you know, experiences that was helping me quiet. But but what the grandmothers taught me, and and through this, um, you know, the, their form of meditation, vision questing, I was. It, I think it saved my life because I was on a bad path. I was really on a bad path. Well, did, so was this, did this start to turn the path a bit, turn the, the wheel? I think it mellowed me out. It, it made me start focusing on what's really important in life. And so, um, you know, so then I, I kind of got my act together and I, I decided, you know, I need to go somewhere with this life. I can't just be this, um, you know, rabble rouser. Now, were you were you religious or spiritual growing up? Not no, because I was thrown from one family to the next to the next. I got to see all these different um, religions and philosophies, and I didn't see where it really helped any of them. And so, <laughs> so I didn't really adopt any any uh, religious view um, until these uh, these grandmothers kind of took me in, and I saw I saw what you know the benefit of of having a connection to your spirit having a connection to the earth and um and and so that that quieted me down quite a bit but then you know you you have to grow up you have to get a job you have to make a living and so you kind of put that stuff aside and that's what that's what you know i became the chief engineer of a research vessel and and um i was i still had that cut your swath through life philosophy because um i didn't really feel like anybody else was looking for out for me so i had to you know I, I had to make my own way in the world isn't that interesting though because you know even even as a young man i was exposed to certain spiritual ideas and they were sat they just sat in the back seat and you yep. just and the ego took over and you just have to keep yeah. going and you got to keep pushing and until the until the passenger in the back seat starts to knock you in the head a little bit you got yeah. really knocked in the head i didn't yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great analogy, though. It's it's sitting in the back seat. It's there, but yeah. um, and and but we're just not utilizing it. You know, we're just not utilizing it. And uh, it, that was, it many times ignoring it, just yeah, just purely. Yeah, well, you're right, but our culture makes us think in that ego-driven kind of framework. You know, that we have to get a job, we have to be successful, we have to compete, we have to, you know. That's how we get along in this world. And and I mean, that's that's the way it is today, you know, still that we, you know, this is this is the way our culture teaches us, especially as males to be, you know, we have to, you know, be out there. And so there's not a lot of room to have a deep spiritual connection in the culture in which we live in today. Um, I have to, uh, the Western culture, I yeah, think, especially the Western. Yeah. yeah, in Western culture. Yes, in Western culture. I think in um, the Aboriginal cultures and stuff, mm -hmm. 
I think you're going to find, you know, that they they include it with their their daily life. And that's and to me, that's fascinating that, you know, oh, my gosh, you can you can be spiritual and still live a life, still be successful, still be a part of this world, you know. And so I I yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's uh, but I didn't learn that until after I had the near death experience. <laughs> so tell, just take us to the to the night or the day that the, your near death experience happened to you, my friend. Well, it was um, early March in 1983. I was the chief engineer of a research vessel. We had um, we just completed a survey with this new ROV, an underwater vehicle, and um, <clears throat> and we were trying to come in to our home port, and there were 25, 30-foot seas, and the harbor master wouldn't let the ship in. So the captain decided that we were going to, because there were a number of engineers on board that were, um, you know, attached to this uh, ROV, and that they needed to get to LAX. And so they decided that they were going to put the Zodiac in the water, which is a a rubber landing craft, you might say. And um, we use it for uh, retrieving our submarines and stuff like that. So it was was a very durable craft, uh, really reliable. We weren't concerned about it at all. But um, they got in and and the captain decided that because we had a skeleton crew, because we were on evaluation, we weren't on an actual job, um, that I should probably go in the Zodiac with them because I knew the harbor. We didn't have a real skilled uh, deck crew on board that day. And so... Normally, I don't get in. Normally, I don't. I don't go on the the Zodiac and take people, shuttle people back and forth, because I'm in charge of the ship. I'm the chief engineer. So, but we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Captain thought this night would be probably prudent, so we went down Bosun's locker, got some really old life vests. <laughs> they were <laughs> the old May West ones, you know, and, and we had, <laughs> because it was a rough night, we finally, we thought, well, maybe, you know, most of the time we didn't wear life vests. We just, you know, in, in those days. It was the we 80, just, it was the eighties. It was the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we just didn't bother. <laughs> um, and so these were, were on board to meet Coast Guard requirements, but who the heck wore them, you know? So we had to like beat the dirt off them, put them on, jumped in the Zodiac, took our last bearing of where the Harbor was, tried to, tried to see where the harbor buoy was, but we were two miles off. So you could just barely see now and then a, a flash of light from the harbor buoy. Um, but, and it was a stormy night. I mean, you know, it was really rough. And so we headed in. And uh, so that was, that was, that was, that was the, the beginning of the end in a lot of ways. Cause um, you can imagine um, 25, 30 foot, when you're a couple miles offshore, they're just rollers, right? They're just mm-hmm. just big rollers. And so we'd go on top of a swell, try to get a bearing on the harbor, ride the trough down up to the next swell, do the same thing again. And, and But at the same time, you got to realize the harbor buoy is bouncing up and down too. So, you know, are you in sync, you know? And we lost track of the harbor buoy, but the shoreline was lit up. So we figured worst worst case, you know, we're in Zodiac. We can just do a beach landing. We'll get these guys into the harbor somehow, some way, and we'll we'll get them on their way to the to the airport. And we were about a mile offshore when all of a sudden we actually drove off a breaker. And so we, you know, we boom. 
And oh. I yelled at the mate, turn us around, get us back, you know, turn us around. I'm in the bow trying to, trying to, you know, trying to see our way. And and there was a mate that was on the console driving. And um, <clears throat> I yelled, you know, turn us about, let's get back out. We're, we're, <laughs> we're in a breaker zone. This is a dangerous place to be. And just then the next one came. And it crashed down on top of us. And when it did, it folded the Zodiac in half like a peanut butter sandwich. And I was in the bow. It catapulted me into the sea. And um, and I was just tumbled and tossed and tumbled and tossed and and totally lost all bearing as to what was up, down. But I trained as a commercial diver. You know, I wasn't freaked out because I had good old Mae West on, she's going to yeah. carry me up to the surface. I just have to hang on and protect myself, you know? And so I was doing that and, um, but it, you can only hold your breath so long. And um, eventually I drowned. Wow. So you're in the water drowning and you're out. So what happens, at the, at the, what happens next, David? <laughs> well, it's, it's, um, it's really interesting. Um <clears throat> Drowning, and I've talked to other drowning experiencers. It's kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if we just gravitate to each other. Sometimes, you know, the way the universe provides things like mm -hmm. that. But, um, and and the other other drowning uh, near death experiencers that I've talked to had had very similar kind of result that um, you you breathe in the salt water, which is not a pleasant experience, but then immediately pop out of your body and. I found myself in an actual void, this darkness, absolute blackness. And, but there was no more roaring of the sea. You can imagine what 25 foot sea sounds like. It's, it's, oh, it's horrendously loud. I've been out there. I've been out there a couple of times. It's not, not fun. Yeah. It's not fun. <laughs> no. Right. And so, um, yeah, the, and, and so you, and if you're on the West Coast, you know that the the current comes down from the north. So that water is incredibly cold. That's why surfers in the on the California coast wear wetsuits, you know, because it's just the water there is very, very cold. And this was March, so it was frigid water. But I'm not feeling cold anymore. The roar of the ocean isn't there anymore. I'm comfortable. It's quiet. It's calm. I'm in this absolute darkness. And so I start, I'm really curious, like, what is going on? And um <laughs> it's kind of funny because, you know, in, in diver training, we actually go through oxygen deprivation training and commercial training and commercial diver training. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is way beyond anything I'd experienced with oxygen deprivation. And so um, I'm just I'm curious. But the funny thing is, is you're in this place that's absolute darkness. But it's calm and it's peaceful and you don't really feel alone. You feel like there's something else there. And because I had just died this violent death, this was an incredibly peaceful experience for me to be in this, this absolute darkness. I know some experiencers that go, you know, research shows about the void that, that it's a terrifying place because you're alone, but you don't feel alone. You know, that can be terrifying. But for me, it felt very peaceful. And then I saw a light, but it was just this pinprick. And I felt like I was moving toward it. And as I moved toward it, um, I started getting these waves and waves of love. Just it felt like I was being wrapped in this warm embrace. And so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you just I was in gaga awe of what was mm -hmm. was occurring. And um, and 
I saw this light as it as I got closer and closer was like millions upon millions of fragments of light. And they were all moving in unison, very much like a, sometimes you see large schools of fish, how they how they move together, you know, mm -hmm. and um, and the light and the refraction. It was it was absolutely mesmerizing and spellbinding. But they I got closer and closer. And as I got um, very close, um, three fragments broke away and they were welcoming me home. Alex, let me tell you, it was it was the most uh, most emotional and life-affirming event ever because mm -hmm. they were welcoming me home and it felt like I was coming home. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a sense of home. We talked about, you know, my early right. life. I didn't really have a feeling of and suddenly I have this sense of here are these light beings that are welcoming me home. I look at myself and I realize I've turned into a fragment of light, one of these light beings. And eventually a dozen of them come greeting me. And I'm I'm just feeling overwhelmed with the love and the support that they're, you know, that they're embracing me with. And then they communicated to me that, um, you know, we need to go into the light. We went deeper into the light, into this area that I, it, to me, it felt very spherical, like a giant bubble. And we went inside and we started to relive my life. And, but I relived it, not just from my perspective, but it was like my, my consciousness had fragmented into multiple streams of, of consciousness. And I experienced it from my point of view, but everyone I've ever interacted with from their points of view as well. And it, it was like um, every, everything, every interaction I ever had would create a ripple and these ripples would cascade out. And it was kind of interesting because you know, I was a brash young man, like I said, and I wasn't real proud. I didn't want this soul family to see some of the stuff that I'd done. And so I was, you know, it was it was hard for me. It was very difficult for me to to because they were experiencing it exactly the same way I was experiencing it. But they were just supporting me and loving me through it, kind of kind of giving me that extra support that I needed to get through this review of my life. But. I, the interesting thing was I saw that when I would do something with just loving intention, when I did something in my life with loving intention, wasn't looking for anything, just, you know, just out of just my heart to your heart type of uh, intention, that it created some of the biggest ripples. And, um, and that was, I, I was just amazed by that. And that the things that I thought were important in life, like becoming the chief engineer of a research vessel, all of these things that, you know, were I held in, in high regard, or maybe my ego held in high regard, <laughs> had had, yeah, very, very little in, in the effect of, of ripples, you know. Mm. So I kept I, I went through the life review and I, I came to the point where I had drowned, but we kept going. And it was kind of interesting because in the life review, everything is so crystal clear, absolutely crystal clear as far as all the, the interactions, the ripples, the, the, you know, the different streams of consciousness. And but when I crossed that threshold into what I didn't realize at the time was is my future was my future. Um, 
I, it became like a corridor, like I was looking down this corridor. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And it was clear in the center, but it was a little out of focus on both sides. And so it felt like I could go this way or I could go that way if I wanted to. And to me, it kind of represented a free will that we live in this life, that we have a choice, you know, but we have a, a chosen path that we've we've picked. But we have this also this this opportunity, our free will to kind of venture off to one side or the other, but we'll come back to, we'll come back to the center, the center path. So anyway, we're going down the center path and I'm start re I start living or pre-living, um, you know, events from in my life. And I get to a certain point and the, the light itself, okay. All these millions of fragments of light in unison spoke and said, this is not your time. You must return. And I said, no way. <laughs> I am not going back. Uh-uh. I've got a family that loves me. I feel loved and support like I've never felt before. I have a family that I didn't even realize I have. And um I'm I and my that body is broken. It's just cold meat in the ocean being tumbled and tossed. And I could still I still had an awareness of that body. But I, you know, this the light spoke to me one more time and said, you must return. You have a purpose. And it did it with so much love, you know. Mm. And that word purpose just resonated in my my being. And when we're in that light, we have this expansive consciousness, so much more than what we have available to us in this physical life, that I understood what the purpose was. And so with that understanding, I immediately came to acceptance. And when I I reached that threshold of acceptance. I found myself outside my body, observing my body in the ocean now, still being tumbled and tossed because I'd gotten into one of the cyclical um, areas where the the waves come in and, and it just constantly keeps you there, you know. Mm -hmm. And so my body's still being ragdolled around in the ocean when um, when part of the wreckage of the Zodiac, actually the bow line wrapped itself around this arm and it yanked my arm up, dislocated my shoulder, and I'm outside my body watching this going up. And the three um, soul family members that had greeted me were with me. And we all rose up together as my body got entangled in the wreckage of this Zodiac. And then uh, more waves hit. And when they did, they slammed my body up against this wreckage and some of that salt water came up. And that's when they gave me a gentle push and I came back into my body. Wow. So the, the wreckage basically gave you a CPR push. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of funny. There was a lot of things that were going on there that played with my mind for years afterwards. Um, the thing that the, the, the bitter lot, bitter end of the bow line was tapping my lifeless chest. And I was sitting there and I was wondering how is the enormity of me going to fit in there? you know, in that mm -hmm. physical body. And then, you know, they gave me that gentle push to go in, but it was. <laughs> so, okay. So you're, so, but you're still in the ocean. You're still flying yeah. around. Oh yeah. And we're still a mile out. We're still right. a mile out. So where are the, what happened drowned. to the other guys? What happened to the other guys? They were on, they were the heroes of this whole story because mm -hmm. they stayed on station. They rallied together. This is what we were trained to do is, you know, as 
in in this type of environment. This is what you know we're trained to do. We're trained to look out for each other, and to you know we all come back together basically. Mm-hmm. And so, um, very militaristic type of mindset. Sure. And well, we were all ex-military, so we're all ex-navy, so mm-hmm. we all had the same training. So anyway, we're you know they had stayed on station. And this is a dangerous place to be. And they had stayed on station. They told me that they were there about between 15 to 18 minutes, they reckoned. One of them had found, a, had held onto a flashlight. I, you know, all the things that happened this night, but he had held on to this flashlight. And so they had all rallied around together and they were looking for me. They were calling my name. But when I came up and I finally took in, it was expelled some salt water and took a breath of air. Excuse me. They, I, I, you can only squeak and squawk after you've breathed in salt water. It just, it, it wreaks havoc with your larynx. So I was trying to get their attention, trying to stay on the surface, trying to breathe. And um, they found me and we all came together and we rallied around that, that wreckage because it was a little bit of air in one of the pontoons of the Zodiac. So we used that as our rally point and we swam a mile inshore. And I said, I had a dislocated shoulder and a thumb. And, um, and, and it was, I was having a hard time. Did <laughs> you swim? Hard time. You, you were swimming or did they pull? You? I was hanging on to the Zodiac and kicking. Okay. And, um, and trying to help, you know, do my own thing. But I kept, I kept, I couldn't stay on the surface. I kept going down and I couldn't. And, but the funny thing is, is when we come back from one of these near-death experiences, spiritually transformative experience, you feel like you're half here and you're half there because that expandive consciousness is still with you. And I knew there was something wrong with my way, May West. And I unclasped the scent, you know, the, the chest clasp on it. And I looked down and the the lining of my May West was dry rotted and the fiber filling had become super saturated with water. And so it was actually <laughs> pulling me down instead of bringing me up. And so I took that off and then I could I could maintain some buoyancy and be able to hang on and 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 just kick, you know, hang on with one arm and and kind of kick and scissor kick my way in with with them. Uh, and we were all hanging on to these, you know, one pontoon of the boat. Now, you mentioned soul family. Did you see any faces? Did you did you know anybody? Was it like grandma? Was it like, who was it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, in the near-death experience, they were fragments of light, but I could see these eyes. Mm. These eyes were in the, and and it was like that. I recognized them not from this life. They weren't like grandma or grandpa because I didn't have that in this life. Mm. But um, but I recognized them. I recognized them as a family. I, and we had this connection that I think was probably lifetimes, you know. And um, and so that's how I that's how I that's and I just started calling them my soul family because they weren't anybody I'd lived this life with. Although. 11 years later, I had a second NDE. And in that mm-hmm. one, I got to live, you know, the additional 11 years in a life review. And I got to see how much the first one had actually affected change in me. Because I didn't really think I, because I had hit it, I wasn't talking about it. I didn't really think it had uh, changed me that much. 
But there were three things in my experience that really, really motivated me. Um, and that was because of the life review, because of the love. Um, and that I suddenly knew who I was. And so there was this acceptance of who I was. I knew I had a lot of work to do because, you know, to, because I was, I needed to change. I, I saw in that life review how I really needed to change, but I could accept that this is who I am right here, right now, and I can do better. And then tolerance, tolerance for other people. You remember my philosophy that cut, cut your swath through life. Well, I didn't include tolerance for other people, mm. but I suddenly had, I could see where other people have their path in life, just like I have my path. Sometimes we intersect, sometimes we work together, and sometimes we may not disagree, we may disagree, but that's okay. That's their choice, their life, their decisions. And we may not agree with them, but I could accept that that is the life that they're living. Okay. It's, it, it's a little innocuous, but, but it's, um, it, and then the, the third thing that really stuck with me was truth. I've always liked truth. I've always, it's an important, it's always been important to me. But after the near-death experience, I realized that there's more than just the factual truth, the truth that we learn in school out of books and the things that we've lived in life. You know, there's more than just factual truth. There's also a truth that resonates within our heart, within our being. And that when we come across these truths, they resonate, we see them, they illuminate within our life, you know. And so I realized that, that you know, that is the greater truth that we need to embrace. And so to follow, and that's kind of guidance in a lot of ways, to follow that inner truth. And so acceptance, tolerance, and truth, that became kind of a mantra for 11 years while I wasn't sharing it outwardly. In fact, mm -hmm. if anything, I was hiding it because the guys, they were like, you know, Dave, we were looking for you a long time. And, you know, damn well, you can't hold your breath that long. You know, where were you? You know, and um, and then all of a sudden you pop up, you know. Um. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So, you know, it's like, uh, you know, where were you? And so I said, oh, you know, Neptune spit me back and stuff like that. I would I would cover I would I would kind of hide it because I tried to share it with my uh, my wife at the time and just it didn't go well. And so I thought, well, I can't talk about this. And the work that we were doing back in the 80s, commercial diving, underwater exploration was incredibly dangerous. And so. Um, Death was a taboo subject. It just wasn't something that you would right. really talk about, you know? Right. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you, when you came back, did you have any issues with what, how did you process what had happened? Because there's one thing processing it on the other side, processing it on this side with the, the limited meat suit that we have and the thing between our ears is such a smaller version of this grand expanse that you were talking about, how did you just process it just psychologically? Yeah, it, it is tough. It, it is tough because you feel, you come back and you feel like you're dense. You feel heavy and dense and because you're confined and that expansive awareness, it diminishes very rapidly. I felt like I was half here, half there for about three days, but then it slowly, slowly diminished. And the things, it scared the heck out of me, Alex, because 
I suddenly was seeing auras. At the time, I didn't know what they were. I just called them life force energies or something. You know, it was like. But it was the 80s. I, yeah. And, and it was in, in Southern California. And we lived in this um, this little uh, apartment community that uh, where all the apartments face each other. And there's a central courtyard, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was all gardened and it was terraced and it was beautiful, you know. But everything had this aura about it. And I was like, what the heck is this? You know, it was like, I must have really took a hell of a bonk on the head because I'm seeing things, you know. And and if I would look at somebody in the eyes, I would see the light in their eyes, just like the light fragments eyes. I could see the light Mm. that resided within a person. And it felt incredibly intrusive. And so I had a really hard time looking at people. And I was that guy that was always in your face, you know, kind of like. And so for me, suddenly not to be looking you in the eyes because I I couldn't, I just couldn't look you in the eyes because I could see, I could see your, your being, your essence, who you were, you know? And so I, I wanted it all to go away. I just wanted it to go away. I want my old life back. I don't, whatever this is, I I think I'm going nuts. I don't want to deal with this. But, um, Also, you start getting, I started getting, not everybody has these after effects, but this is what happened to me. I started having these, they were at the time, you know, the 80s, I called them downloads. Um, We were just, you know, I'd get this information and it wasn't anything I'd learned in school, wasn't anything that I had, um, you know. I had lived or anything like that. So I didn't know where this information was coming from. Um, And I, but it it just, it was this intense knowing um, that would just happen. And so I did what a good engineer would do. I tested it to see how, you know, veridical is this, is this real? Is it something I can rely on? Is something I can use? And the more I tested, the more I found out how reliable it was. And so eventually it's it's not an overnight thing integrating these experiences is not overnight it takes time to kind of get used to it eventually i was able to learn to just be able to shut down the seeing of, of the auras and the and and people's uh life essence and that sort of thing i was able to quiet that down so that it wasn't so disturbing and um i didn't have anybody to talk to so i had to kind of you know, I, I took that acceptance, tolerance, and truth, and I, I used that as that was my handhold. The rest of it, talking and arguing with what I perceived as God, I couldn't deal with that. I had to just th- push that aside. I had to like bury that in my subconscious. I like to say I put it in a in a shoebox, wrapped it up with duct tape, and wrote with <laughs> a magic marker, do not touch, you know, mm-hmm. and shoved it as far back in my brain as possible because I just but i could accept the you know what i learned in the near death in the life review and and meeting my soul family i could accept that to a certain degree so i kind of hung on to acceptance tolerance and truth and just and when i had my second experience 11 years later i saw how much just that little bit that i had taken from the near death experience mm-hmm. had changed me uh, dramatically well, let me ask you, what, you said downloads. What kind of downloads are you talking about? Like what kind of information was coming in? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes it was personal. Sometimes it was about maybe a coworker. I suddenly knew personal information about them. One time it was about 
we were uh, we were getting ready for another job, and I suddenly knew that I was going to have trouble with number two engines uh, reduction gears. And so I had stocked some parts that normally I don't stock, and they're very expensive. Fortunately, I was the chief engineer, and the captain's like, what are you spending this money for? And it's like, well, I just have a feeling we need to, you know, need to cover our bases, you know. And so <laughs> we get we get offshore, we're on job, and and suddenly number two reduction gear, you know. Kind of craps yes. out, and I, but I have what I need on board to be able to repair it, you know. So, so that type of thing, you know, like suddenly I just would know something, you know. I didn't have any, you know, like there wasn't any indicators to tell me that that reduction gear was about to fail, but I knew it. I just knew it. That's fascinating. So, all right. So you've you've kind of hinted at this second near death experience. Can you kind of go through that a little bit? It wasn't so much a near-death experience as maybe a spiritually transformative experience, but it. what happened was I was meditating. I, I got to hang out with some amazing people in this spiritual community, and they were going back to Sedona, which is you know where I, mm -hmm. I live just outside of Sedona. And so I thought, well, this is great. I get to go travel the old trails and 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 hang out with these people, and I'll I'll sit in on a few of their uh, you know, spiritual classes and things like that. But I'm I've, I planned on escaping more than it, more than sitting in with them. But the first day they were going to go do a meditation on Bell Rock, and I thought, oh, that's great. I I love I love Bell Rock. It's a neat it's a neat place. And so I I went up to a place that was familiar to me. I sat down and I started to go into my sacred place, like the grandmothers had taught me. And um and and just as I did that, I was because. Sedona is one of those places where I feel like I can breathe because it's it feels like home to me because I lived there as a, as a youth. And so as I sat down, it was just I was so comfortable. I was so at home. And all of a sudden I heard that voice, the light speak to me and it told me to return to the light. And when I did and and just <laughs> there was no choice in the matter, I suddenly found myself back in the ocean, drowning in the void, meeting my soul family again, having the life review. Only this time, I got to see those 11 years that I had just lived. And you had um, to go, wait, hold on, you had to go back through all of that to get back? Like it was like one way only? There was no side well, was, door you could walk into? What the, it was <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, right? It was like, I didn't have a choice. I just suddenly went through and relived the entire near-death experience. Now, right. I've talked to some near-death researchers, and they said that, you know, a lot of times when an experiencer represses their experience, mm. okay, that they may have a spiritual crisis at some point. And that it may bubble up. And this also happens, I understand, with childhood experiencers because they're made to repress it. And then maybe in their 30s, 40s, 50s, I even know one in her 60s, suddenly it came up. It bubbled back up to the surface. And so I feel that's kind of what happened with me because I had kept it close to my consciousness by adopting some of the experience, but trying to hide part of it that. It was only 11 years and and I finally went to a place where I was comfortable and I was I was in that quiet place where I could hear very well and was going into my sacred space and that's where you know boom it it came all flooding back. All right so all right so you came so you went back and you relived it. 
and and then you saw in that your life review when you get the life review you saw in 11 more years yeah yeah of of living my life and i saw how much it really really changed me so we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show yeah it 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 taught me that I need to adopt the entire experience. I need to just embrace the whole experience and start living by what I'd learned within this experience. So I started living by what I called my quiet ministry, that I was going to, um, I was going to, uh, you know, live by what I'd learned in this, in this experience and just bring it into all aspects of my life. So and then through that through that spiritual experience, when you went back through that life review, what happened after that? Did you just come back to the body? Yeah, yeah. But I, you would have thought I drowned because I was I, I the perspiration. I was soaking wet. You know, <laughs> I mean, you would have thought I just drowned. And I came walking down, and and it's kind of funny. Um, there on this retreat were a number of near very well known near death experiencers, and. Um, and so I had suddenly I had peers that could be mentors. Mm -hmm. And so but I, again, I felt like I was half here, half there. It was very emotional time because I <laughs> I really didn't get to participate in a lot of their adventures because. Everything was alive, everything, and it was just it was hitting me emotionally. You know, it's it's kind of interesting when when you go into the light, you go into it, you, you don't bring your body with you. You don't bring your emotions so much as you have like a, a, a tether to your emotions. But when you're in the body and you have that same love affecting you, embracing you, our human emotions just get overwhelmed by it, you know. And so immediately after the second experience, I had a real hard time just being in public because I, I loved everybody. <laughs> I loved the table <laughs> that I was sitting at. You know, you, I loved the you were chair. High. You were high. Yeah, you, was, you took, yeah, you well, took some well, ecstasy. You took some ecstasy, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So it was just, uh, it was very hard to be with people. Um and so when did you decide to, during this these 11 years, when did you decide to kind of come out of that spiritual closet and start talking about it? Not till after the second experience. Oh, really? So it was still all held in all this time. You were holding it. You were repressing it for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I, well, I had, anyway, there was some, there was some reasoning behind it because I really, sure. you know, you don't, you question it. You question it. We're human. Of course, of course. And our ego gets in there and says, hey, hey, I can be just as good as that experience, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny how our head plays with us, you know. But these experiences feel more real than this life. The kind experience. Like a, like, the, like a dream. And, and many times you wake up from dreams that felt so real because you were in a different place and you wake up and you're like, <laughs> like sometimes my wife will wake up and she'll hit me for something I did to her in a dream. I'm like, I didn't do anything. So I swear <laughs> to God, it was right there. You did this. Like I did nothing. I was just sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I'll think of just the opposite now where you are right now. That's the dream. Yeah. Yeah. This is the dream. Yeah. What well, this is what would the Aborigines say is this is the great dream. 
Yeah. yeah. The great dream. It, this is this is this is not the reality. This is the the simulation. This is the dream. Mm-hmm. This is the illusion that yeah. we're we're living. And we're gonna wake up on the other side going, mm-hmm. I was on this podcast. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're gonna go, What's a podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of it's very interesting because I I anyway, I had a thought, but I lost it. But you so you finally started to come out and and did you what when you finally decided to start sharing this experience, how was the reception? You know, friends, family, so on. Yeah, yeah. Um really positive because I'd I've by this time in my life, I had I had changed my uh, my entire life had changed because um during that 11 years there's a there's integration that's going on and I didn't there's this calling that comes out to, with people that you want to be more of service mm-hmm. so it it so I quit my life at sea I began working you know in I worked I, I started working in hospitals in biomed and then eventually in in dialysis and and I just, uh, you know, I felt like I could be of service more by living life with people, not being, you know, 500 miles offshore all the time. And so I had started communi- or interacting with more spiritual groups and interactions. So when I came out, um, that's kind of funny. I never thought of it that way as coming out. But when mm-hmm. I started sharing my experience, I had, um, I had, kind of found some mentors and some some really good people that um that really supported me in it and so i i felt supported once i did did start to share it why do you think this happened to you david that's an excellent question and one that plagued me for many many years <laughs> but that <clears throat> that word purpose and that's kind of why i wrote my book was you know voyage of purpose i just the purpose that there was a purpose behind me coming back. And I think it's part of why they kind of showed me some little previews. Um, And I had to fulfill what, what the purpose was. And um, the big part was to prepare me for in 2000, when I developed stage four lung and bone cancer. And the prognosis, I had lesions in my hip, my brain, my kidneys. It had eaten away two and a half bones of my thoracic and my spine had collapsed. And um, the prognosis was I was, I only had, you know, six to eight weeks to live. And, you know, part of my mind said, hey, you can go home, you know. (laughs) But the other part said, hey, remember the purpose? and. and I knew because I saw in that life review when I was living my future, I saw I was going to have the cancer. I also saw I was going to live beyond the cancer. And so, <clears throat> and the funny thing happens with people that have terminal disease prognosis. There's at first there's a fog, you know, this fog of of what the heck is going on in my life. But then there's this clarity that you know what's important. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what yeah. you focus on is what's important in your life, right? Well, with mine, I, I I had that clarity, but also it brought me back in focus 
with my my spiritual and my human life and it kind of kind of gave me this laser focus as to you know how to move forward and my communication after my second experience became even more enriched because my my soul family were actually communicating with me so i had this amazing guidance to guide me through the you know the the tough period in life which was stage four lung and bone cancer well that's very interesting because these are the first near-death experiencer i've spoken to who was shown pieces of their future in a life review i we didn't we didn't you didn't cover that the first time we went through the story so that's a very interesting part you actually saw glimpses of these things they're like hey you're gonna get cancer but then we're not gonna we're not gonna do a spoiler alert on if you make it or not but over here you see yourself past it so you make you make the decision of what happens yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it gives you a leg up. That's for sure. I mean, I knew <laughs> I knew I was going to survive it. Right. But which is a positive thing when you think about it. Yeah, our course. attitude when we go into, um, you know, illness and and any kind of dis-ease, you might say, any anything that is, uh, you know, a, a, a rock in our path, <laughs> having the attitude of how you're going to overcome the obstacle is incredibly powerful especially to our body especially because our body has amazing healing qualities to it and um you know i've got a broken spine three and a half bones are missing in my spine and the only thing holding it together is a massive tumor you know it's like this is you it's know, the body normally it, the body doesn't like this uh, but i was able to overcome it and the and the really weird thing is is I used a combination of traditional and because by that I'm working in the hospital in dialysis. And so I was able to use um, traditional medicine and ho some holistic approaches. And by using my guidance, my guidance kind of shared with me, you know, oh, try this, try that, you know, and this, oh, this feels right. This doesn't feel right. You know, that sort of thing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And um, and within six months, I was cancer free. And the doctors, of course, had no idea how that happened. They just they uh, I love the <laughs> phrase. Um, not sure what you're doing, but whatever you do, just keep at it. You know, I've heard that statement from doctors who have patients with miraculous. <laughs> healings go i don't know what's going on just keep doing it and yep. Yep. but that doesn't but you know that's funny thing about doctors is because you've I've, I've had family members in the in the health field forever and i have doctors in my family who it won't change them they see an experience like yours and they'll be like ah it's an anomaly and they just don't dig deeper into it and they still walk their path isn't that fascinating yeah um my oncologist was fairly progressive. And my family Good. doctor, my primary care doctor at the time was very interested. He wanted to know how I did it. He really did. I mean, he was, he sat me down. We had a, a just a standard, you know, <laughs> physical and we spent half the physical talking about my near-death experience and how it guided me through my oh, cancer, God. you know? Good. And, um, and he thought it was, he was amazed by it. That was my primary care doctor. Unfortunately, he got out of medicine, but anyway, um, <laughs> But but my oncologist was um, 
he was very he was very interested in the holistic approaches that I had combined with the traditional medicine, you know. So you had some open minded doctors, some progressive yeah, doctors. Yeah, yeah, and and that was kind of a neat thing because I was uh, I picked my healthcare team. I but that's a very fortunate thing for me because I was in the hospital. Sure. I was I was part of the system and so I was able to, you know, kind of pick my healthcare team and and to move forward. Um I, I I think, but attitude, checking in with your guidance, those are all the things, you know, I had a friend, I had actually, I had four friends that came down with terminal cancer diagnosis at the same time I did. We all worked in the same division and, and one of them survived. The others didn't because the minute they were diagnosed and I was talking to them, they said, oh, I just got my death notice. You know, they were given yeah. up yeah. and sure enough, they were gone within months. You know, the way we perceive ourselves, you know, if we give our body a chance, we can, mm -hmm. we can overcome a lot. We can overcome a lot if it's meant to be, if it's meant to be. David, you've lived a very interesting life to say the least. Um, why do you think that you, what did you? What is the biggest lesson you've learned in this lifetime? Why did you have to go through all of this in this incarnation? Well, I, you know, uh, since the cancer and everything, I've, I've started a what I what I call a contemplative practice. It's um, it's meditation, but then within once you reach that point of stillness, then you open up a conversation with the divine, basically. And and in contemplation now, I'm able to share a lot of what I, you know, what I've learned. Also, since I was able to overcome the cancer and I used um, a lot of my own um, going into the light and and using the light as a as a guiding star, basically, to show me how to overcome my cancer and to use energy work in as one of the uh, uh, now I can do that for other people. And so I learned how to help other people through energy work. I also do contemplative living uh, podcasts and things like that that I and I think that now i'm I'm living more in my purpose now than I ever was. The cancer, though, really was a big role in that. It taught me so much on how to overcome the obstacles that we face in life. Because well, I've faced a number of obstacles, <laughs> a few, just to say the least. And I mean, would you agree that, you know, that life happens for us, not to us? With us. Mm -hmm. I would say with us. We're co-creators in our own lives. And and we have the ability to, well, we have a lot. We have a, because we have free will, we have a, we have a lot of choice in life. And if we choose to, we can sit down in our path. We can just sit down, relax, say, I'm not doing anything else. I'm not gonna. I'm just, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna co-create my life. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm just gonna sit here in my path. But life's not gonna let you do that. It's not gonna <laughs> let you do it. it. You may think you are, but it's not gonna let you because the universe is gonna throw stuff at you. That's what living this life's all about. We all face challenges. But how we approach those challenges really, really determines who we really are. Now, David, I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all my guests, my friend. 
Um, sure. What is the definition of living a fulfilled life? I think living a fulfilled life is being authentic, mm-hmm. being true to yourself, trying to learn as much as you can about your higher nature, connecting to that higher nature, and then bringing it through and and using it in all your interactions. If you had the ability to go back to that young man and give him one piece of advice, what would that be? Wow, that's a great question. I don't know. What would I tell him? <laughs> Keep your head down. No. Um, <laughs> don't get on that buoy. <laughs> don't get on that boat. <laughs> no, you know, as rough as my life was, I, there's not a lot that I would want to change. So I would just um, try to encourage him to stay in touch with what he'd learned from those grandmothers. Mm, okay. How do you define God? You see, God to me is omnipresent. It's everywhere. It's a part of everything. It's within you. It's within me. So I see God as something so much greater than what our minds can even comprehend. So I see, you know, God in the universe. I see God in the trees in the dew, in the grass. I, I mean, I see God in all of that. What is the, and what is the ultimate purpose of life? Oh, I think that's, a, a, there's a shared purpose, I believe. And that's for all of us to be able to recognize our own divine nature. Great answer, my friend. Now, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing, sir? Well, I, my, the portal to everything, Dave, is, um, <laughs> is dharmatalks.com, dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, talks, T-A-L-K-S.com. And, um, but on YouTube, um, if, uh, if you're interested, I have a podcast on YouTube that's uh, contemplative living, but it's, it's on my YouTube channel, which is Dave's Dharma Talk. Um, so those are the two that I would, or Instagram, Facebook, you know, but if you go to my website, you can click on all the links to my, you know. To your stuff, to your work, the Dave's world. The Dave's world, yes. Dave's world. And do you have any parting messages for our audience, Dave? Yeah, I would say the one thing that really stands out in this life for me is that, you know, we don't have to go looking for God or the divine because it resides within each and every one of us. But the way, the portal for us to find it and to bring it into our lives is to quiet ourselves enough to be able to hear it. David, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for the amazing work you're doing to help uplift and awaken people around the world, my friend. Thank you again so much. Thank you for having me, Alex. It's been great. been fun. I want to thank David so much for coming on the show and sharing his journey with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 259. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.